0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This episode is a really special one for me. I am talking to the legendary design and architecture writer, Carrie Jacobs. Carrie probably does not need an introduction, but as a quick survey, she's been writing about design, architecture, urbanism since the early 90s for publications like Metropolis, The New York Times, Home and Garden, ID, and Curbed. She was the architecture critic at New York Magazine, founding editor-in-chief of Dwell Magazine, and with Tibor Kallman, she was the founding executive editor of Colors. And then, in addition to all of that, she teaches in SVA's Design Research and Criticism program. In this episode, Carrie and I go all the way back to her earliest uh, sort of writing memories, writing for her college paper with Matt Greinig, who, of course, would go on to create The Simpsons. We talk about how she started writing about graphic design and architecture, what it was like launching Dwell Magazine, and her experiences working with Tibor Kallman on Colors Magazine, as well as the great AIGA lecture, Good History, Bad History, that she wrote for Kallman with Abbott Miller. And then we also talk about how the profession has changed over the course of her career, how the kind of understanding of design writing has grown in the, in the interest in that and how she's kind of navigated that. As I think you'll hear listening to this, I really love Carrie's writing and her work has been foundational in my own design education, whether it was with Dwell or her work with Tibor. So it was so great to hear stories of her early career before design writing or criticism were really even defined as discipline. So I am... So grateful to have had this time and honored to share this very fun conversation with the great Carrie Jacobs. You've been someone that I've wanted to talk to for a while Been this kind of recurring character that has come up again and again. and, And I've been reading your work For years, at least, you know, since I was in high school and was kind of discovering all of these things. Um, But I don't actually know much about how you got into any of this, and and so I kind of wanted to start just to frame all of this. It's kind of a two-part question, is kind of where your interest in writing or wanting to be a writer came from, and then specifically kind of architecture and design and and urbanism, where that interest came from.
1: Well, I have been told recently that writing is, is genetic, uh, that there is okay. something in the Jacobs clan that compels us to be writers, um, and certainly my father, who was in the garment industry, okay. uh, mostly making really crappy ski jackets, um, really valued profession and thought that being a writer was kind of the greatest thing you could be. And he was always submitting anecdotes to Reader's Digest magazine, (laughs) things like that. Um, So I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I bought it, but eventually it happened. Um, Okay. Really, somewhere between maybe my second and third year of college, I started taking Actually, actually, I know. Um, I was. I went to this hippie college in the state of Washington called Evergreen, which is now, which is lately famous as as a hotbed of uh, humorless um, humorless leftism. Okay. Um, Okay. And it always has been actually a hotbed of humorless leftism, but it wasn't a national issue till recently. Uh, I won't go into that. (laughs) Um, But I. You know, was doing some writing there, and I went to this cultural event at Seattle Center, Seattle, and and one of the workshops at this cultural event was for women writers, and someone gave a talk about how women don't take themselves seriously when they do things. They say, oh, it's just a hobby and <laughs> and there was a like an assignment in this workshop that you had to write a note for the refrigerator door as okay. as and I wrote this sort of rhyming okay. note and I thought, God, this is better than anything anyone else did. Maybe I should take myself seriously. So I think that's when I decided oh, wow. to be a writer.
0: So what did you what were you thinking career wise before that? happened, or what were you interested in?
1: Well, you know, this was the 70s, and I don't think people thought career-wise okay. so much back then. Not, I don't think it's like it is now. I had thought originally that I wanted to be a filmmaker, and then I found out how much it cost to make movies. <laughs> yeah. I went to yeah. you know, one college film class, and the whole class was about um, the price of raw film, And how much you would use relative, how much you would go through relative to how much you actually would need in the movie. And I did the math and (laughs) realized I just couldn't afford to do that. Yeah. Um, And again, that would be very different now. Um, And, you know, I don't think I really knew. But I started writing and I wrote a couple of things for the college newspaper. Okay. And, uh this guy I knew took over as the editor of the college newspaper and hired his best male friends as his sub-editors, and one of them got really angry at him and and left in a huff, Um, and he called me. And so I wrote for the college newspaper. Uh, The editor in question um, is Matt Groening, who went on to do The Simpsons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So that's sort of a weird... uh, So my college newspaper... Yeah. Situation was, in retrospect, kind of, kind of unusual. That's um, crazy. Actually, most of most of the people who I went to college with, who have become at all famous, are famous as cartoonists. Yeah. So in that office, um, the guy who did the the paste that pasted up the ads um, was Charles Burns. I know that was, name. Who was also a cartoonist. He did a version. He worked with. Um, not going to be a oh, mark morris on a version of the nutcracker
0: oh um, this sounds familiar yeah I think
1: he's in philly or he was in Philly. okay and then the other person who was a regular in the office mostly to come in and annoy us was linda berry oh wow so <laughs> okay um and i'm not sure you know what any of that means but that was yeah uh so the person i sort of really got serious about writing with was Matt Groening because, you know, we were like staying up all night, um, you know, trying to write, you know, the new journalism. That was, you know, very much the thing. There was, uh, um, there was this compendium, which was probably called the new journalism of, you know, articles from like New York Magazine and Tom Wolfe stories that we would like study. Yeah. And, um, so that's when I became a writer.
0: I this is so, this raises all these other questions that I was not planning on asking you (laughs) about, but I just kind of want to parse this out a little bit because it's kind of amazing. Parse away. (laughs) I'm, so I'm interested, I'm, I'm very curious about, and you started touching on this a little bit, but kind of, that writing experience and what type of writing you were trying to do was was humor and satire was that or was it kind of journalism well, or, or
1: what was both I uh, mean because I was low on the totem pole I was right. sent off to do um, you know cover the budget hearings in the legislature okay. would affect which would affect our tuition and, and right. write about that right. And, um, but then I also wanted to write the funny piece about the demonstration that happened at the state legislature and to, you know, review the Robert Altman movie that, you know, just came out. And I, after a while just said, look, I can't just do the news stories. I need to have some fun too. Okay. Um, and once I said that, that was, you know, fine. (laughs) And
0: and so what, what type of, you know, what type of stories were you doing then when you kind of got that? Permission, or 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 how did your writing change when you started to break out of just strict news?
1: Um, well, you know, I guess it was. I mean, somewhere, somewhere there's a pile of point journals. <laughs> um, right. But I don't know. Just I guess more adjectives, more first person, more yeah, making yeah, fun yeah. of things. Right. Um, I mean, what what Matt was doing. I'm not sure how many actual articles he was writing. He wrote a little column in the back called The Stuffed Albino Squirrel, which was okay. um, right. sort of this story, I guess, okay. uh, that involved a stuffed albino squirrel. I can't really remember the details. <laughs> and he was sort of cartooning in a very non-serious yeah. way. You know, like he'd leave a note for you about, you know, the fact that he'd be back later and there would be like this goofy rabbit
0: Okay. Um,
1: With Big Teeth, who I think was a parody of his best friend, Brad. Okay. And that sort of became one of his his first that sort of became his life in hell character. Yeah. Um, So, you know, at that point, I assumed that what I would do professionally would be a writer. And, um, you know, and then Matt sort of went off to L.A. and worked in a a Xerox shop. Okay, um, yeah. for a while. <laughs> okay.
0: So, where did the interest in architecture come in or writing about the well, built architecture,
1: environment? Architecture for the most part didn't come till later, okay. but you know, it's weird because I the very first professional article I did out of college, there was a newspaper, a weekly alternative newspaper called the Seattle Sun. Okay, yeah. And um, I, you know, went there with my clips from my college newspaper, and they were doing a special issue on the future of Seattle. Okay. And either they suggested or I suggested that I would co- find whatever plans had been done for the future of Seattle, and. Oh, interesting. And so I wrote this piece about how, you know, there was one plan that involved moving sidewalks to take people up the hills. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just sort of found all this wacky stuff that had been proposed that, had, you know, probably ne- would never be done. And then the Future of Seattle issue came out, and it wasn't in there. And I was, you know, heartbroken and yeah. didn't talk to them, didn't call them. And a couple of weeks later, all of a sudden, my article was the cover story. and oh, It wow. was just that they had decided it was so good that it could stand on yeah. its own. But they didn't tell me that. <laughs> um, and then, but that, after that, I don't think I wrote anything that was particularly about architecture or urbanism, you know, for a long time. I wrote about rock and roll, primarily. <laughs> okay,
0: okay. So, and let me, I, I want to think kind of how to, how to phrase this. So, it's interesting to me that you kind of just fell in, you know, you were just kind of assigned that piece.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess they must have assigned it, because I don't know if I would have known to right. look for that stuff. I have no idea how yeah. that happened. It's sort of weird. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. Okay. It was just sort of a fluky thing that I, you know, forgot about.
0: And then, and then I'll, be, I'll be completely honest, I don't know anything about, about your writing about writing about music. Um, what was that type of...
1: Well, what happened... Was um, this was the the late seventies, early eighties, okay. and so um, you know it was sort of the beginning, it was sort of the punk rock era, <laughs> right. and every city all of a sudden had to have its music magazine, <laughs> right. um, and so this supplement, this thing called the Rocket, started as a okay. supplement to the Seattle Sun, okay, and someone I knew. I think it was like maybe Linda Berry's boyfriend said, oh, you should come to a meeting. We're doing this magazine. You should yeah. write for it. And so I went to a meeting, and I got assigned some stories and wrote some stories. And um, by that point, I think I was working at a record store in the U district. Okay. And they said, oh, well, since you're working at a record store in the U district, uh, why don't you write an essay about the future? It was about to become 1980. Okay, So yeah. like what rock and roll, what music will be in the future, meaning the oh, 80s. Oh, interesting. And so I wrote this essay, and um, it was sort of about the idea that, you know, world music would happen and all these other things, Uh but the main thrust of it was that, you know, that rock stars were going to begin to die of old age, you know, uh, in the future, that it would be, rock stars would be rock stars until they're very old. Right. It out to be I was going to say that sounds actually pretty close <laughs> to what happened. Uh, so it was a pretty good essay and it yeah. was funny and you know and so they said, "Well, you know, why don't you become one of the editors because you seem to okay. know what you're doing." And you know, we'll guarantee you like $100 a month. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, nice. uh, and so like that, I became a senior editor of The Rocket. Okay. Um and The Seattle Sun was Failing financially, which was a a long story. Um, And somebody had access. There's two different stories about where the money came from. But (laughs) somehow someone came up with $10,000. Not me, for sure. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Either the guy who was the editor-in-chief won it at poker, which is what he claims, or... The guy who was the publisher's family ponied it up, which seems more likely to me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, all of a sudden there was $10,000, and we used it to liberate ourselves from the Seattle Sun and become an independent publication. Okay. And so I wrote a lot about music, but I also wrote about... Uh, What I was beginning to describe as the underpinnings of popular culture. That was my description for what I was doing. Okay. Uh, So, for example, the the first American outpost of Nintendo uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was based in the suburbs of Seattle. And I, you know, went and talked to them and had them try and explain to me, you know, why Pac-Man looks the way he does. Right, right. And I began to write articles that were about design, although I don't think I thought of it yeah. as design, and my, my best friends, you know, at the Rocket and elsewhere tended to be the graphic designers,
2: uh-huh.
1: um, and magazine production at the time involved staying up all night the, day, the night before right. you went to the printer right. and, and, you know, putting wax on the back of things and
2: yeah.
1: uh, physically laying out pages, and so I did that a lot. Um, and so I was kind of in a design culture. Um, and then I got hired, I was really, I got tired of the rocket, and, uh, when the editor-in-chief who started it quit to take a job in Orange County, um, it was between the two senior editors, and it became very obvious that our male publisher and his male sidekick much preferred the male Mm -hmm. editor. Yeah. Uh. And, uh, there was, there was a lesson I learned there that <laughs> has stuck with me, yeah. uh, to this day. Um, but mm-hmm. I, so I took a job, I got offered a job as the Sun Tracks editor, the music editor okay. of New Times Weekly in Phoenix. Okay. And, uh, and I thought, okay, I'll go do this okay. weird thing.
0: So I have two questions, kind of from from that story. Um, the first one is is about the music again, and, and it's kind of the type of writing you were doing, or what being a music editor meant. Were you writing album reviews? Was this kind was of writing, more like that well, feature of music type?
1: Can well, everything. Um, I mean, my position, I was. The thing I was editing specifically was the stories on, I was editing the live music coverage and I was trying to make it so that we covered local bands as much as we covered national acts and that we covered local bands that actually did their own material Uh as opposed to cover bands and trying to sort of push this sort of music revolution that was in progress forward as best I could. Um, And so I was, sometimes I was writing about live music. You know, it's like you 2 came through town on their first Mm -hmm. U.S. tour, and they played in some tiny little club. You know, I wrote about that. Sometimes I was doing interviews. Sometimes I was doing album reviews. But sometimes I was doing, you know, features that were, you know... I did a feature about, like, the war in Nicaragua. I did a feature about... you know, abortion rights. Oh okay. um and you know, so I did So
0: you were still doing a lot of I different... did whatever
1: I felt like doing. Okay. And nice. whatever I felt like doing I went to a, you know, Miss Teen Beauty pageant and okay. wrote about that. Yeah. Um you know, I drove all over, you know, sort of the suburbs and went and saw every lounge act. Yeah. It's <laughs> great.
0: I love that.
1: Um so it was a great situation, you know, it was a situation yeah. in which I could do whatever right. I wanted to right. do. Um We, I don't know. Maybe at a certain point we got to the we're making like you know three or four hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Uh, You know, toward the end of every month, my boyfriend and I would walk around Seattle Center by the Space Needle and look for money that people dropped on the ground. So wow, okay, (laughs) okay. uh, So the, the the job offer in Phoenix was. You know, I, would, I wouldn't have to look for money people dropped on the ground anymore. And right. They, and they said they'd lease me a car. And, yeah. Um, I thought, okay, I'll do this. That's interesting. Um, And Phoenix was shocking. I bet. it's a whole different culture. Yeah. And I think that's probably when I began to think about cities. Okay. And how they're put together.
0: That was going to be my next question because I was curious about, I wanted to come back to the... And if I'm jumping around a little bit, correct me, but I was curious about the Pac-Man story and and kind of talking about how you were kind of around design or in this design kind of culture, but not realizing. I was interested... I'm curious if there's kind of a a moment where that suddenly came into focus, the way kind of that writing workshop in college, you know...
1: Well, what happened, again, in at the New Times in Phoenix, uh, which was a really, it was an enormous weekly paper Mm -hmm. then, and they hadn't, sometime after that they bought up, like, every other weekly newspaper in the country, and that's a whole Uh, other story, um, but it was a very, it was a very central feature of life in Phoenix, um, Anyway, my deal with them was I would edit the music section, but I could write whatever I felt like writing. So I didn't write about music that much there. Um, And I started writing about... I did a piece, like, for example, about Neon, about the fact that upscale communities like Scottsdale absolutely banned Neon, but on the other hand, there was this emerging culture of collecting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, And I... There were... I'm just trying to think about what else... Um, I don't know, I did a story about the culture of happy hours, okay. um, they, um, I don't know, I did all kinds of crazy stuff, um, I did a thing about, this was sort of a music story, about ASCAP and BMI, oh, yeah. Yeah. which, you know, uh, collect money for music performance rights right. and then distribute them badly, you Yeah. Know, that, and sort of about... How they were cracking down on laundromats and their sound systems. Oh, but interesting! Same, you know they were going to like the smallest venues to collect money, but when they distributed money, it mostly yeah. went to the biggest players. Yeah. And so I did, you know, some serious reporting. I did some, you know, essays. I did, you know, whatever I wanted to do. Um, at and I was supposed to do two of these big alternative weekly features a month. Um, And at that time, we were still talking typewriters, not (laughs) computers. I have no idea how I did that, uh, except that I was always in trouble for having, you know, turning in stories late. (laughs) um, Anyway, so I did that for about two years, and by the end of that two years, now we're getting to about 1984. My boyfriend, who was a graphic designer and an artist from Seattle, um moved to New York, and I was, you know, scheduled to meet him, and I got there a few months late, um, but I eventually moved to New York, and I knew by that point that I did not want to write about music anymore. I was taught, I was just, you know, sick of rock stars, I was sick of, you know, talking to people in the industry. Right. Um, I wanted nothing to do with it, and so the thing that I thought I might be able to do was write about advertising. Okay. And the first thing I did was I approached, um, let's see, Ad Age. at Age, which was based in Chicago, part of, you know, sort of the Cranes empire, and sent them some clips, and they started assigning me stories. And so I started doing stories for them. And then I found out uh, through some friends. At this point, we had, you know, a lot of, there was the Seattle Mafia. A lot of people who I worked with in Seattle had moved to New York and were either, for a while, were the art department yeah. of the East Village Eye, um, right. and I was for two, for about two days. I was the features editor of the East Village Eye, but I just hated it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I, you know, people just kept on handing in these horrible articles that I, I kept on hiding in desk drawers. Yeah, they were so bad.
0: That's amazing.
1: Um, so I didn't last very long. Anyway, um, and then the Village Voice kind of got inundated mostly oh. with with art directors yeah. from the rocket right um and a few photographers and anyway so somebody in that network said well you know clay felker is now the editor-in-chief of ad week clay felker being the legendary editor who started new york magazine yeah
2: yeah so he
1: was like the god of new journalism and i called him up and i said you know i write for ad age but i would love to jump ship okay
2: you know
1: point of fact I was nobody I was like the lowliest (laughs) right you know me jumping ship was no skin off anyone's back and he invited me in for a meeting and read my resume and talked to me and was nicer than anyone I had met to date you know to that point in New York and probably nicer than almost anyone I met after that (laughs) I mean, I was I was yeah. really nobody, yeah. and he sat down and talked to me, and had you know an editor at ad, ad week start assigning me things. Oh wow! And so I started writing about advertising, and it quickly became clear that my um, my strength was writing about weird stuff, <laughs> and um, you know, so I wrote wrote about you know skywriting and. Right. Um, about, I don't know, spent a day following a radio consultant around as he consulted with his clients. Yeah. And, um, you know, and some of it was visual stuff. Uh, some of it was, I was really interested in package design. So I wrote about package design okay. from time to time. Um, and in any case, at a certain point, uh, now we're, we're sort of moving into the uh, mid mid to late 80s. um, You know, a friend of mine became the art director of this oversized magazine called Metropolis. Okay. And told me that there was uh, a job opening there that uh, one of the associate editors had quit and I should apply. So because I've been writing all these odd articles for a long period of time, I had a great set of design clips, even though I never thought of myself yeah, as a design writer, it wasn't. Again, the thing I had sort of moved from saying I was writing about the underpinnings of popular culture to the infrastructure of popular culture. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. And so, you know, I had the thing about the neon. I had the thing about the package yeah. designers. Yeah. I had, you know, I just sort of had this this weird, you know, I. I this weird set of clips that taken together looked like what a design writer's set of clips might right. look like. And by the way, there really wasn't at that moment any such thing as a design right. writer, really. I mean there were architecture critics. Um and then there were maybe some designers who wrote. Right. But there really were not it's not like there is now. Um, right, and you
0: weren't really writing about architecture in the traditional sense. It really was more kind of visual culture Visual culture. advertising, yeah. things like that. So yeah. it was this kind of different thing.
1: Yeah, so, and I came into Metropolis, um, you know, and had a whole bunch of ideas, some of them ideas I've been pitching, yeah. um, like an idea about the relationship between package design and garbage.
0: Okay. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Which you know became a, a cover story for metropolis um okay. you know about all these plastic drugs that had right. started appearing that no one knew what to do with really yeah um and you know and again it was like these features that would go on for like 6000 words yeah. um and god only knew, knows how i did that right um and you know sort of weird concepts like i was really interested in the idea of convenience yeah. Like design How we design the world for this this concept, uh, convenience. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in the idea of transparency and what that right. might mean. And, you know, in the interest of transparency, do you dumb things down? Do you make things more <gasps> opaque? Right, yeah. Um, and I just sort of had all these, you know, cons- concepts um, that they were, you know, Susan Sanazi to her credit, said, okay, fine, go ahead, you do that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like that really hits on what I've always liked about your writing and what has become, I think, kind of my angle in a lot of, in kind of talking to a lot of people and that so much of design writing and specifically graphic design writing is this kind of surface level critique of how something looks. Yeah. Um, and this is the example that I use. I feel like in every conversation that I have, of you know, Company X redesigns their logo, and then it's they talk about you know how the typefaces have changed, or the color has changed, right. or the kerning right. between the letters have changed. And you've written about things like that, but that mm-hmm. never yeah. seemed like your interest. And right. I like that use of kind of the infrastructure of these things. It's kind of how they come into being, and then what happens when they're in the world. Right. And that's.
1: Well, the first actually, the first feature I wrote for Metropolis was about corporate logos because it was oh, at okay. that moment when corporations were changing their names to be less specific. Oh yeah. So you know, I guess that you know, U.S. Steel became U.S.X. And right. There are a million other examples, but nobody wanted to be known for making a specific thing anymore because they were pretty sure that specific thing wasn't right. You know, wasn't what Wall Street wanted them to be doing. Right. And so I did a piece. Um, bad corporate logos that I interviewed, you know, everyone I could think of. I went and interviewed Michael Beirut when he was, you know, sort of a mid-level designer <laughs> at Ginelli. Um yeah. And he was very nice and very gracious and uh, I called up uh, Paul Rand out of the blue oh, wow. and he said, okay, yeah, come meet me at the Yale Club, that's fine. Yeah. Um, oh, that's amazing. And I had no, well, I mean, Michael at that moment wasn't it, you know, he didn't become a, a Mover and Shaker until somewhat later. Yeah. Uh T. Bor had just done this piece for ID magazine about corporate logos, okay. which was yeah. sort of about the same mm-hmm. general idea, but it was not, you know, not so much a research or written piece. It was kind yeah. of, a, you know, series of, of one-liners. And I called him up and he said, Well, everything I think is in the article. Look at my <laughs> article. Okay. Um and so yeah, that was the first piece. And the other piece that I think people that sort of put me on the map, was a piece about type. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, my, you know, I was living with a graphic designer. All my right. friends were still graphic right. designers. And I lived in a very type-centric world. <laughs> right. Um, and it was sort of at the yeah. moment when the the uh, technology was changing from photo-based yep. to, yep. you know, um, digital, and everyone was going insane. Yeah. And so I went to this, you know, conference in which, you know, people were, were just... I don't know, lamenting. <laughs> a lot of yeah. lamenting, a certain amount of arguing, a certain amount of, you know, yelling. And it was kind of great because right. I just, you know, wrote this epic feature about, you know, what is a typeface and what you know the materiality or non-materiality yeah. of, of type.
0: I'm I'm still really amazed, kind of hearing hearing you retell this, how how much of an accident some of this feels like that that you became you started writing about these things did you ever feel like you were being pigeonholed into writing about these things or were you were you very much kind of following your interest well, at the time because i at
1: the point where i started feeling pigeonholed i sort of changed course okay um you know i was really had really became sort of well-known in the graphic design right. world, That's especially. What, yeah. And so I started writing about cities more. Okay. Um, I started getting interested in... Well, now now we're sort of... Well, a few things happened. Um, one of them... Let's see. Yeah.
0: There are a couple of things in your background that I want to make sure we don't yeah. gloss over. Okay. So well, Okay, well, one <laughs> okay. of the
1: things... At a certain point, I think I was on staff at Metropolis for two or three years and then I kind of negotiated a deal with them where I would, you know, continue writing all the stuff that I wrote but I wouldn't have to come to the office okay. anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um and somewhere in that period, not too long after that happened, uh, there's a lot of there was a lot of back and forth between Tibor Kalman and I. Okay. Yeah, we I were, want to talk about know, this we a were little sort bit. sort of, you know, I don't know, shooting flares or yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, To each other, at each other. There was a certain amount of back and forth. Um, And one day he called me up. Both of us were speaking at this AIGA conference that happened in San Antonio, and I think um, maybe 1989? Must have been 1989. Okay. And um, let's see, I think Tibor, maybe Tibor and Milton Glazer were the. Co-chairs of the conference. Anyway, it was sort of this attempt to make the AIGA conference, you know, in some way radical and relevant. Oh,
0: I've read about. I know what you're talking about.
1: So the talk that you saw, the thing about uh, graphic design and garbage, yeah. was my talk, right? Which I spent no time working on because Tibor hired me to ghost his speech.
0: Right, and this was this the good history bad. No,
1: no that was this is this is. Prior to that, okay. this, this is just called bad. Okay. And it's sort of about the idea that everyone can be a good graphic designer now, but the real trick is to be bad. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so you know, it was sort of full of rhetorical flourish, and you know, yeah. And writing it was just a nightmare um, because I would write a draft and would say no 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 I didn't I don't want this I don't any place that I actually did what he told me to do he didn't like right Uh, and I finally got that idea yeah (laughs) yeah went back and just sort of wrote the thing that I wanted to write and and that worked better um and um so and that went over very well and you know the New York Times like reported on his talk (laughs) <laughs> right, I didn't report on my right. Talk. of course, and, of course, you know, and, and again, that was sort of another one of those, those yeah. life lessons. Yep, um, and yeah, I'm
0: sensing some recurring themes happening now.
1: Yeah, yeah, well,
0: so, but I mean, so did you, me? I, I might be mixing things up, but didn't you work on his talk, Good History, Bad History? Yeah, also? that was
1: that came okay. So we went to San Antonio and when, whenever that was, I guess it was the summer of 1989, uh, or maybe it was like September of 1989. and I ghosted this talk for him. I sat in the audience. I kind of watched them all, you know, the audience like just be smitten with people mm-hmm. with, with, with giving this talk and in some cases mispronouncing words. And, <laughs> you know, and it, uh, I don't know. It was, it was sort of like being a playwright. Yeah, but kind of an uncredited play. Oh, right, right. because
0: you're seeing someone else perform almost this thing you worked on.
1: Yeah, this this thing that I wrote. So, okay, Okay. the next thing that happens: these guys from hard working in the Netherlands, who we were friends with, came back to New York, and we spent a day or two running around, you know, crossing paths, and and at some point, um, Gerard Hatters, who's Name I'm pronouncing very badly because it starts with a Dutch G and no one oh, can pronounce right. a Dutch G except Dutch people. <laughs> uh, but, but one of the partners of hard work and, and I walked into Tibor's office and Tibor said, um, you know, Stephen Heller just asked me to write the keynote or asked me to give the okay. keynote at his design history conference. Can you write it? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, and... see yeah i just wasn't i wasn't gonna do it again and so he got abbott miller right to right. write it and then he sent it to me and said i don't think okay. this is quite right yet can you take a look at this okay and i sent him a bunch of notes of here's what you need to do to fix it mm-hmm. you know get mm-hmm. rid of cut out all the modifiers mm-hmm. uh you know and try you know all the words that you can't pronounce and uh, okay. all the references you don't get yeah and and In any case, what happened eventually is that, you know, Tibor took my notes, waited two weeks, and then called me again and said, please, can you fix it? So I went through Abbott's draft and rewrote it to sound like Tibor. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Which is to say I rewrote it to sound like me, but or me writing Tibor.
0: Right. I mean, this is I'm, I'm asking this purely selfish reasons because Tibor, you know, like I mentioned before, started recording growing up as a kind of suburban kid discovering yeah. graphic design. Tibor was one of the first designers that I became very aware of, and that that Tibor monograph was something that was very important to me uh, at a very young age. Yeah, and I bet. and specifically that talk, good history, bad history, was something that was. You know, very profoundly affected the way I was thinking about design when I was in college, and and a good friend of mine and I kind of read it together. It was <laughs> like our design education is like we're we're getting messed up. Like this is wrong, and and this is you know what Tibor and Carrie and Abbott wrote here. Yeah, is is what we were really interested in. So uh. I, I was always very curious about kind of the origins of that. Because it was so seminal to my own kind of understanding of
1: yeah, being a well, designer. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that the sort of the philosophical underpinnings and many of the examples are avid. Okay. Um, and then I changed some of the examples because they were just too, like, yeah. I don't know if that's in there anymore. There was, like, a whole thing about a certain Bible, a certain edition right, of the Bible. Right, right, yeah. It may still I, be in there. I but, should have
0: reread this before I uh, talked to you. I
1: haven't reread it in a long <laughs> time. But there were things that I cut out because I just, it didn't seem like Tibor could plausibly be speaking about that. They just seemed wrong. Huh. Um, and then, in any case, when he gave the talk originally at the at Heller's, you know, design uh-huh. history conference, he, for whatever reason, used, primarily used Paula Scher's work as the visual illustrations mm. of the concepts. Okay. And there are a couple of places, I think, that, that the piece actually refers to Paula.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: but, sh- But he used a lot of her work, and she was not happy. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, he showed me what he was going to do, and I said, why Why are you doing so much of Paula's work? And I, to this day, really don't know what his, you know, what that was about. <sighs> but, yeah, at some point, Paula just came up and, and made it very clear how she felt. I can't imagine. Uh,
0: it's yeah. always interesting to hear these stories as someone who kind of came to all of this stuff after the fact. So I, yeah. you know, I'm always kind of seeing it through a bit of a h- historical lens. Um, yeah. and so someone who was there, it's very interesting of kind of how the dynamics of this change yeah. kind of through history.
1: So anyway, yeah, it was, and then, then there was a third talk that we actually presented together at the, the Millennium Conference. Um, and you know, again, I was, the writer and Tibor was supposed to be doing the visuals, but okay. in fact, that was Scott Stoll who did the okay. visuals. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I said, mean, yeah, Tibor is a complicated subject because he, was, he was just a force of nature and he made, he was very, very good at making things happen and making things happen in bigger and more interesting yeah. ways than they yeah. otherwise would happen. But in terms of doing the specific work, whether it was design or writing or editing that, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Those were not his working with people and, you know, either motivating them sometimes or driving them insane sometimes or a little of both. He was great at, but actually creating things himself. Right. It's it's sort of a weird, I mean, there are a lot of characters like that out there and he's.
0: Yeah. But it's interesting because I feel like you have, you did kind of work with him on a lot of different things and went on to do colors Were you there from the beginning
1: for that? Yeah, I was, I one day was at my office and uh, got a fax, slipped under my door because I didn't have my own fax machine, I used the the guys down the hall, you know, receive faxes for me, and it was (laughs) a pie chart, which was one-third National Geographic, one-third Life Magazine, and one-third The Face. Okay. And this is this magazine that, that Tibor wanted to know if I was interested in working on. Okay. And so at that point, he and Oliviero Olivier Toscani had come to New York mm-hmm. to find someone to, I think, art direct, actually, a magazine. And someone sent him to see Tibor, and Tibor said, I want to be the editor. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and so sometime after I got the pie chart, um, I got, on a Saturday, I got a phone call at home, uh saying, you know, come to the office, come talk with us. Mm-hmm. Uh and so I went to M Company on a Saturday afternoon and there was Oliviero Toscani and there was Tibor and we talked about this magazine. Yeah. And uh and I tried to get them to sort of nail down the offer like what it was they wanted. Mm-hmm. I looked at Toscani and he said, Why are you looking at me?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Anyway, the, the idea <laughs> was that, that we were going to do this magazine, and it was going to be for Benetton, and it would be yeah. packaged with uh, you know, a sweater catalog. It, right. but it wouldn't be right. about sweaters. It would be about the world in the broadest, right. most undefined sense of the word. And t um, Tibor would be the editor, and I was supposed to be something called the assigning editor. Okay. And we fought about the title because I was... Hiring the writers. I was editing. I was coming up with the stories, uh, right. you know, and we basically we fought about everything um, So yeah. I wound up being the executive editor um, and We I don't know. It was four issues in two years. It yeah. was labored intensive beyond belief uh, we did things by FedEx and fax and phone that today, of course, you would do, you know, electronically with no effort at all. Yeah. You know, we had, we organized, we had sort of teams all over the world who could, you know, go out and buy the local kind of candy and send it to us by FedEx. I Um, mean,
0: it's so interesting because I feel like that magazine for a lot of graphic designers has become this kind of iconic t bore. You know, that's in, for a lot of, of younger designers, Tibor is synonymous with colors. And, right. and, you know, that's overshadowed a lot of his other work, I think. Um, and so it's interesting that you were kind of there for that. It was the first four issues that you yeah, did? Yeah,
1: yeah, I was there for the, at the beginning.
0: And then I, I know that we're kind of jumping a little right. bit, but I, I do okay. want to make sure that, that we have some time for some other... I don't want to just spend time talking about all this early work, but right. I, I do want to talk about one other thing in your background that I think connects a little bit to Colors in that I've noticed in talking to you how you've been involved in kind of the beginnings of a lot of publications. And another magazine that was very influential to me as a kid was Dwell,
1: yeah.
0: um, and which I think started in 2002.
1: No, it started, it, we launched in 2000.
0: Okay, okay. So I started
1: working on it in 1999.
0: Okay, um, and I, I think I came to it a, a couple years later, but I was, a, as a, again, as a high school yeah. student, I yeah. was a Dwell subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was that weird, weird kid. So yeah. that was something that was also very That's influential funny. to me. So I'm curious, I don't know if I really have a specific question there, but I'm just curious a how little that, bit about how, how you got how involved that with that. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, um, let's see. Uh, After Colors, I did Colors for two years, and then I left the country um, because I didn't want to get sucked back in, Mm -hmm. so I went to Berlin for a while, Um, and then I came back from Berlin, and Tibor left the country. He went to Rome. Right. Uh, So that worked out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I didn't really want to write... Sort of writing for Metropolis at that point had begun well I did some actually I did some more work for Metropolis, but it was sort of about how electronic technology was going to affect the shape of cities. And I wrote all these articles in the mid nineties about that subject, which all I think turned out to be basically wrong. Yeah. Um (laughs) and um (laughs) and then I decided, okay, I don't really want to keep on writing for Metropolis anymore. So I Kurt Anderson at that point Uh was the editor in chief of New York magazine and he had fired the guy who had been their architecture critic when he took over um and wait so you worked for kurt also yeah i did not know that well he so he hired me to do an architecture column okay uh sort of based on a lot of the writing i had been doing about (laughs) sort of the shape of cities (laughs) and um so i started doing the front of the book it was a it was a front of the book column, not, not an arts column in the back of the book. Okay. And I did that for a few years, but about let's say maybe a year in, Kurt got fired. Right. Um so I worked for Caroline Miller, who was his okay. replacement. Okay. Um and Anyway, um, this guy Hugo Lindgren, who had been a uh, that. okay, that's sort of a, more of a journalism okay reference than a design reference. He had been an intern and then a junior editor at Metropolis. Uh, he wound up being my editor at New York Magazine, yeah, and then okay. he went on later to be the editor of the New York Times Magazine. Okay. so that's a whole other thread. Right. But yeah, so I worked. I worked for Kurt, um, and yeah, he got canned, which is yeah. really a shame because it was pretty pretty yeah Under. yeah
0: He he's like I, I tell people that kurt anderson is basically kind of who i want to be when i grow up uh in that just kind of the way he seems to operate is, is something yeah, that's very is, appealing I think that, to i me. think
1: between you know studio 360 and and writing books and sort of yeah. odd other things he seems to be doing and tweeting he's a good <laughs> tweeter yes yeah he is. um anyway <laughs> Uh, so we were going to talk about dwell. Okay. Right, right. All yeah. right. So, so okay. So I started writing this column for New York Magazine, yeah. and yeah, and it was great. It was fun to do. Um, it was hard to do. Right. Um, and I probably could have done that forever, or at least until Adam Moss took over. Right. But I heard that this, I got. I guess I got headhunted for dwell. Uh, okay. This woman from the West Coast was starting a magazine, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I don't even remember if she came to New York to meet with me, or whether I just sort of sent her a package, Okay. but somehow I became one of two finalists to edit this magazine, which mm-hmm. at the time was called Box. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, and wow. so the, sort of the final, You know, the final competition for becoming the editor of Vox was to plan a special theme issue, do a critique. They had like these editorial consultants who sort of, you know, did an outline of what the magazine was supposed to be and what its contents might be. Mm -hmm. So to do a critique of their outline and also to plan a themed issue. Okay. And my critique of their outline was, okay, you have all these high-minded ideas about doing a magazine about modern design, but the outline you have could be any stupid magazine. You know, it's like, Mm. he he said, she said. Oh, interesting. And I just said, you don't want to do this stuff. This is horrible. You know, it was basically, it was a... uh, it was kind of a fuck you. Right, right. <laughs> like, I don't really want this job. Yeah. I think, you know, you're making some mistakes here. This is what's wrong. And it was, you know, it was not a polite critique. <laughs> and then the special issue was about the idea of mass-produced, mass-produced housing. Okay. So it was about... Because I had just interviewed some architects who had this idea that they were going to build houses. They're going to have a boat manufacturer mm. build houses, and mm-hmm. it was like this really seductive idea. And once they actually tried to make it happen, it was a disaster. But okay. uh, I had, you know, I had this in my head, so I kind of came up with this idea of doing an issue about mass-produced houses. Okay. Um, I mean,
0: that's interesting, though, also, because I feel like that's, that has ended up becoming a large theme of, yep. of Dwell, or, yep. or small spaces, mass, mass production. Yep, prefab. Yeah. So
1: the first, uh, so anyway, I got offered the job, um, and I thought about it for a bit. I decided to take it, which was surprised to my then-boyfriend, <laughs> who apparently, <laughs> I didn't talk to him about it. Uh, uh-huh. Like, the fact that I was moving to San Francisco, I had somehow neglected to tell him.
0: Oh, that was, you, you were moving for that job also. Uh, yeah, I
1: moved. Okay. I uh, did the stupidest thing you could ever do, which so is I sold my New York apartment. Uh, oh, no. moved to San Francisco, um, I spent about three years out there, about a year of startup, okay. and then I ran the magazine for about two years. Um, and the, the first, I had to put the mass-produced houses back a couple of issues because right. the, the publisher thought it was not, you know, Shelter bookie enough. Yeah. Um, and when we did the first prefab issue, which is, I think, the third issue of Dwell yeah. ever, the cover line was, you know, prefab is pretty fabulous, which has been done a million <laughs> right. times since then, but I right. think that was the first time. And her cover consultant, who is the bane of my existence, <laughs> said that, that we should make the word prefab smaller because it was too trade. And of course, you know, that sold incredibly well Yeah, and people were really interested in the idea.
0: Curious. I want to start to kind of connect this a little bit to I mean cuz we're still, you know, 15 years ago and I want to I don't want this whole thing to be right. talking right. about right. 15 years ago or more but I want to use that story actually to kind of connect it to kind of the current day and maybe talk about right. some larger questions I have around the design okay. discourse because it's interesting that, to me that you, how much you how many of the subjects you were writing about have now become kind of popular topics to write about? Yeah. And so, you know, you've kind of been consistently writing and you've written, f- you know, we've, we've mentioned them the New York Times and, and ID Magazine, I think you've written for. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. all of these, these, these publications, how has the, the, the discourse around design or, or the built world changed? In, in, you know, those last kind of 20, 15, 20 years.
1: When I was starting out, there was, it's not that there wasn't discourse, it just wasn't popular discourse. Right. There was professional discourse. Design got discussed by designers at Uh design conferences and in, you know, design publications that nobody but designers read. Yeah, Um, and at a certain point design officially became not the underpinnings of popular culture or the infrastructure of popular culture, but popular culture. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think that's a function of blogging Mm -hmm. and the, you know, it's, I should be able to think of like what the seminal moment was when that transition yeah, that transition happened, but I, you know, some of it has to do with star architecture and some right. of it, you know, but it just, there was just a moment where a new corporate logo, you know, would be the occasion for this, you know, mass pile on yeah. online. Yeah. Um. So I don't know, a lot of the stuff that, a lot of the obscure stuff that I used to write about isn't obscure anymore right. and is you know of general interest um does
0: that change did that change how you maybe your own writing process or or the subjects you're interested in writing about or 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 how you write about these subjects knowing that there's greater interest in it have you found yourself wanting to write about your more obscure things or change how you're writing about these things now knowing people Um,
1: like it No, i still i still seem to be solidly obscure (laughs) (laughs) right i mean i don't even even though there's more in some way you know like i wrote for travel and leisure for a long time um until until the woman who was the editor you know that's a whole other story but she left and everyone i knew got you know either quit or got fired um but that was a context in which I could write about design in a really mainstream Mm -hmm. way, you know, sort of design as travel or travel, you know, design as a reason to go to a particular place. Right. And I liked that because travel stories are by definition sort of amorphous and pointless. Mm -hmm. And it it was a way to write, write travel stories that, and the editor I worked with was really good at, you know, sort of the, conceptual assignments so he would call up and say can you do something about the city of the future yeah and I'd say yeah sure <laughs> right and you know and then i'd sort of try and figure out what the city of the future might mean right now and whether there was one that i could actually visit and yeah. um for a while i during the recession i i anointed myself the airport critic okay. because, I, because they were trying to run travel and leisure off of inventory, off of stories they had assigned, Mm -hmm. but it never Mm -hmm. run. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if I was doing something that was service-oriented and that, you know, was a column, then they would have to, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: That didn't work as well as I would have liked. I did maybe three airport critic columns, um, but I sort of became the airport expert. Yeah. Um, Writing about airports is really interesting. Yeah. um, Because it's, you know, both, both, sexy right and um and also really um complicated and you know there's a lot of nuts and bolts yeah so but you know a lot of a lot of what is desirable in a mainstream story about design isn't the stuff i'm interested right in. and i just i don't know i just go through phases of being interested in things um I mean, I've been writing a lot for com yeah. about the concept of engineered nature. Right. Um, and I'm thinking there might be a book in that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I've been writing since the election for Architect Magazine about things that were done under Obama that affected the design of, of mm, cities mm-hmm, or places mm-hmm. that are being eliminated. Like, I'm sort of trying to, yeah, you know, illuminate Yeah, You know, sort of the the parts of the federal government that are actually important um, to architects and planners and, you know. Yeah. Um, So I've been doing that.
0: I I recently talked to Jeff Maynard from Building Blog. Do you know his work? Sure. Um, And we talked about something very similar and how, you know, you can almost, you can, it's interesting you could put a design lens on subjects that might not necessarily be seen as design. Right. Or, you know, we, we've gotten, or kind of the inverse, we've gotten to this place in society where, you know, almost everything has been designed, which is why I think, you know, you're writing about kind of engineered en- environments or engineered nature. Right. Suddenly, things that seem organic are design issues or policy issues, if right. it's, you know, the things and, you're writing about Well, well for my, my,
1: my line, my one-liner about why I write about design um, is that I'm really a generalist, mm-hmm. but I was told that I needed to specialize, right. and so writing about design is a way to pretend that you're a specialist without ever really specializing.
0: Oh, yeah, I love that.
1: Um, so that's, that's <gasps> I used to give that explanation a lot. I hadn't right. thought about it recently.
0: No, that's actually a, a really great answer because um, someone who who's also very fundamental to how I think about my work as a designer and as, as someone who talks to design writers is uh, Mark Wigley. And mm-hmm. he has this this recent book, Are We Human? which he wrote with uh, Beatrix Kalamina about kind of...
1: Well, it, was, it was for a biennial, It was right? for their biennial, yeah. and
0: then they published this book, but they have this this line in it that listeners of the podcast are probably going to get tired of hearing me say, because I quote it, I feel like I quote this in every Uh. interview is that the whole globe has been encrusted with the geological layer of design and that we can't escape the effects of design anymore, which is very much what you're just, what you were just talking about. And that, that design has become this almost generalist thing where you can kind of write about anything with that kind of, lens
1: yeah no it's and it seems like i was i'm currently reading this old moshe softy book which is actually a much Uh, older book which is sort of the it was it's basically the oral history of habitat oh okay Uh, because i'm writing a piece about habitat right now and i was up there and actually got went inside apartments for the first time but I was walking in, I've been there once before, um, and there's sort of this hollow underbelly to habitat that you walk through, um, and it's the most undesigned place. Hmm. It's really weird. I mean, you know, apartment complexes today are like (laughs) hyper-landscaped, you know, that like a a famous architect's apartment building would be, and there is some landscaping around it. But this underside that is kind of the I don't know, the main street in a way, is there are birds nesting in the crevices and it's kind oh, interesting. of a little bit ghostly and it's yeah. beautiful. It's just beautiful, but it's nobody has really messed with it. Right. Um and it just made me think about how uh designed yeah <laughs> environments are these yeah. days. Um so. I'm
0: curious how you we've touched on this a little bit but I'm curious how you think about audience for your writing and and especially how that's changed in, in thinking about how this has become a, a kind of popular subject in a lot of ways um, Do you have kind of an imagined audience or or kind of who are you writing for who do you who, who are your readers
1: um. I guess the short answer is I have no idea. Okay. Um, I mean, I've always written things based on what's interesting to me at any given moment. And, you know, and my ability to convince somebody, some publication, some editor, that whatever it is I'm interested in would be interesting to someone else. At Metropolis, particularly early, like, I mean, I had two different periods of working for Metropolis, one in the 80s, and then when I came back from Dwell uh, in the early 2000s, I started doing a column, which I did actually for a decade. And in early Metropolis, I always felt like I probably personally knew every single reader. You Mm -hmm. know, the circulation of Metropolis was not (laughs) that big, and it was really limited to the design world. But in the second version, because the columns were online there was a much larger and less predictable audience. Okay. And some of those people would still be designers or planners or whoever. Yeah. But um, the only way I really can gauge it, I kind of look at who retweets or tweets my mm. pieces. <laughs> um, on You know, with Curbs, there are probably more people in the real estate industry. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess that makes sense, but it's always a little surprising right. to me. But, you know, all kinds of people. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I know you're supposed to think about audience. And when you sell a book, you wind up having a conversation. That's part of the, the right. process. Right. Of, you know, proposing a book as you say, oh, well, I think my audience will be X and Y. And, you know, you're making that yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the reason I ask
0: is something that you had said earlier that is something I think about a lot, which is kind of how specifically graphic design writing started as something that was very kind of inside the profession. There right. was a lot of designers right. writing for other designers. And I, I'm i kind of interested in how, you know, maybe the relationship of the role of the critic to the profession versus to the people outside of the profession. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I guess I'm, you know, how much of your writing I don't feel like I'm not sure if there's a question here, or if I'm just kind of articulating this yeah, for myself. Yeah, I think but. that
1: I'm happiest writing about design for a non professional audience. Okay. And if, if professionals like it and mm-hmm. are interested in it, that's fine. But I mean, I think that, you know, particularly writing for New York Magazine was a really good yeah. education yeah. in how to write about the things that interested me in, in a fairly mainstream, accessible right. way. Uh, Dwell was, a, you know, an attempt, successful, I think, yeah. to talk about, you know, architectural issues in right. a mainstream, accessible way without, right. without making them dumb. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wrote for, wrote for House and Garden. I did a oh, blog for House and Garden yeah. for less than a year because Condé Nast decided to kill House and Garden <laughs> right. somewhere in their, uh, I don't know, I sort of, you know, I much prefer writing for, you know, a general audience, and, yeah. and it's not, you know, it's not a mass audience for sure, um, right. it's probably um, a nerdier than average yeah, audience. Yeah, I was going to
0: say, it's, it seems like it's for, for people that already have some level of interest, you know, it's not something that just, yeah. you know, goes in a daily paper for everyone to kind of stumble upon, I, I imagine. It's it's not for that
1: person? You know, it could be, though. I I don't know. You know, it's sort of... You know, it's like... I'm not sure the New York Times is an example of anything anymore. Right, the premise, you know, the premise of daily newspapers was that everybody was interested in everything.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And that, that, that idea doesn't exist much. Right. Because people have, you know, kind of... Right. ...put themselves in really small niches. But I... I feel like I write for a world in which everybody is interested potentially in everything.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: Um, and and I think there maybe are enough of those people out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I can continue <laughs> right. to do what I right. do for a while. I
0: mean, I, that that leads in perfectly. I just have a couple quick questions just to kind of wrap okay. wrap this up. Um, but I was interested in kind of what what you were just talking about with, with daily newspapers and kind of this audience that, you know, there's enough audience that's interested. And I, I, I'm curious, I, I, I don't want, this question is going to sound very oversimplified and I don't mean it to, to okay. be that way, but as someone who has written really extensively about graphic design and visual culture and someone who has written about cities and architecture, and I've talked to a lot of designers uh for the podcast who have talked about wishing that the design discourse was more similar to the architecture discourse and some of that is kind of i think for many years major newspapers had architecture critics right and and just kind of that that you know kind of popular you know writing it about it in ways that people outside of the profession would see it but i also think that a lot of architecture discourse for designers, and I, I include myself in this sometimes, uh, just as much more theoretical and sometimes deeper and much more interested in the effects of buildings on the right. landscape and that often graphic design doesn't have that. And so I'm curious about the differences you've seen in kind of writing for both sides of that and if there's things from architecture, urbanism, or cities that maybe could apply to design, graphic design writing.
1: I think the main thing is to think about graphic design as part of the environment. Yeah. You know, part of your daily life. Yeah. Like buildings, uh, you know. Logos and text and right. all of those things. Right. Um, I mean, I think that the reason that the culture of architectural discourse is so much more, I don't know, I guess serious is is because there's that much more yeah permanence and money right right (laughs) uh maybe not in that order right um you know (laughs) yeah i you know i said it a long time ago uh graphic design is still inherently disposable yeah um and you know in some ways it isn't i mean it seems like some logos are you know as Mm -hmm. permanent as any building and and, Mm -hmm. but um but but certainly people take, you know, graphics more seriously and notice yeah. them and dis- discuss them right. more than they used to. Um, in, in part, in large part, I guess because, you know, our environment is, is often a screen.
0: Right, I was just going to say that.
1: You know, that we're like, you know, this, with a, with a, a phone in front of our, you know, face <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, half or two-thirds or 98% yep. of the day. And right. so... The graphics and the uh, emojis and, you know, the type and all of that stuff is as much or more right. of our environment than these, you know, these big physical things that we don't seem to notice.
0: Right. That leads perfectly into my final question. And, and I'm, I'm very curious, what are the issues or topics that you think graphic designers should be about or thinking about more kind of within the profession at this kind of deeper critical theoretical level?
1: Um, you know I don't think that seriously about okay. graphic design yeah. anymore but I you know I guess if I was thinking about it just what a reader is what reading is yeah. um, you know, whether there are different kinds of reading, um, if there are good <laughs> kinds and bad kinds, yeah. that, that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, whether visual language, the persuasive qualities of visual language and how to use those effectively. Um, yeah. You know, long, long time ago, I did a book with Steve Heller called Angry Graphics right. about the political protest posters of yeah. the... First Bush administration (laughs) Um, almost thought about doing a sequel for the second Bush administration didn't do it. That would have
0: been great though actually.
1: um, The you know graphics the political language of graphics is really interesting right now and really important right now and that's certainly something um, that's worth thinking about and and examining and documenting because some of a lot of so much of what's out there is you know pretty ephemeral Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's worth documenting and, and paying attention to.
0: Yeah. I know I said that was my last question. I it, it <laughs> did bring up one more, if that's okay. okay. I'm curious what are the, the subjects that you're really interested in right now, whether that's design or not design that you're well, going to.
1: You know, the thing I'm trying to do that I have not quite figured out how I'm going to do uh, when the program at SVA that was originally Decrit, right. D- yeah. it's still called Decrit, nicknamed Decrit, but it's now Design research writing and criticism yeah uh, started out I thought that I was going to eventually have a book that was going to come out of what I was teaching and Oh, interesting then, and how and what I've taught changes and the, the, the main idea is that you know the city is a much more potent um, design museum mm-hmm. than, any you, know, than right. any you know institutional design museum but really it's about looking. And how to look, not just critically, but in a way that's conscious and aware and noticing where you are, what's going on and why things look the way they do and, and, you know, sort of evaluating the world around you, not just Mm -hmm. passing through it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sort of finally at the point, I think, where I want to figure out how to write a book that's kind of a a handbook to looking at the world.
0: yeah. I love that.
1: Um, so that's, um, yeah, it's sort of, sort of a guidebook to the world. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's great.
0: I feel like that's, that's very aligned with so much of kind of a undercurrent of, of a lot of these conversations I have is that all of this, and it's what we've basically been talking about for the last hour, all these designed artifacts carry with them so much meaning and stories, and that to kind of look at them and look away you're kind of missing all of this, yeah. this other stuff. Now
1: there's, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to say it, but yeah. you just sort of see the number of people who walk down the street staring at yeah. their phones, and it's like, come on, look up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> look yeah. Look around. Yeah, uh, yeah so, no,
0: I love that. So,
1: yeah. Actually, it's the first time I've phrased it that way, a guidebook for the world. Oh, good. So,
0: I'm glad I could help a, a little <laughs> bit with it.
1: It's a good, good way to think about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Thank uh, you
0: so much. For this, this was so fun for me. I mean, you're you're a legend Um, and have come up again and again. And I had so much fun talking to you and and learned so much. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Okay, well, thank you for coming over. (laughs) Yeah,
0: this was great. (laughs) Okay. This episode was recorded on July 25th, 2017 in Brooklyn, New York. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.